Welcome to The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Barrett Brooks. I'm the COO at ConvertKit. My co-host is our CEO, Nathan Berry. We're on a mission to help creators earn a living, and this is a show about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. We're live for The Future Belongs to Creators. I'm Barrett Brooks. This is Nathan Berry. We'll be your host today. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) We're in for a show. Today, it's episode 79, which is about the top mistakes that we, meaning you and I, have made as creators to date. I'm sure there will be many more of the years. But uh, we're going to get into some of the things that we learned running creative businesses really hopefully just allow you not to make the same mistakes we have. But first, we could not possibly jump straight in before we have a chance to do a little red, yellow, green check-in. So Nathan, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm definitely green today. Mondays are a busy meeting day so that I can do, like Mondays are my manager focus day so that Tuesdays uh, and Fridays and sometimes Wednesdays are maker focus days. So very much in the manager, like coordinate everything sort of mood today, but had a good weekend. The weather is perfect, not too hot, not too cold, not at all smoky. It's pretty great. Quick random story. We went to, it's sort of like a fair. It's like a farmstead thing, like a harvest party fair, which was really good. I was super nervous going because I was like, how many people are going to be here? It's all outside, but turns out not that many people. And it was, it was great. And they had hand sanitizer everywhere. And I was like, my kind of people, here we go. Um, but they had this, uh, they called it an apple blaster and it's sort of this artillery cannon, but for shooting apples and Oliver thought it was the coolest thing ever. And we had a great time and he's already asking, when can we go back and do it? So I'm planning the next time that I think, uh, the farmstead will not be very occupied and go back and do that again, but it was a good weekend. I'm green. How you doing? Love it. Um, let's see. I'm green. We, we probably have about 20 I don't know, I was trying to think how many, 20 or 25 perfect days in Portland a year, something like that. Maybe it's less, but today is a perfect day. It's going to be like high 70s at the peak, but we woke up and it was in the low 60s, gorgeous blue sky, no smoke, no rain, no nothing. I'm very excited. All the windows are open in the house. I had to untape, I taped all the windows to not let smoke in and I'm untaping them to open them even though smoke might come back. So anyways, that's the weather update where I am. Aside from that, I got a haircut. All right. Looking fresh. I even put a collared shirt on today. Look at that. Mm, mm, Your mm. hair was about to become (laughs) the third co-host of this podcast. (laughs) Uh, I'm surprised it wasn't already. Yeah. Now I can go another six months before I get another (laughs) cut. Anyways, let's see what else is going on in my world. My kid's 10 months old today. That's exciting. And we have started a new series of ad campaigns yes, that are working very well for us in the business. And um, it's the first time we've worked with a number of agencies. We've always grown mostly organically and through our affiliate program. And over the years, I think we've both lost a little bit of faith in paid advertising as a growth channel. Usually it's used successfully as a way to accelerate an already fundamentally sound business and one that resonates in the market. We just have never been able to unlock the growth. I don't know what the deal has been, but this new partnership with this new agency is making me hopeful. It is. Dare I say. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's coming along. We've, we're what, five days in? Mm-hmm. It's like a weekend is normally 
600 accounts for us on a weekend day. So 600 on Saturday, 600 on, on Sunday. And we're at like 800 and 900. And so we're consistently driving an additional 200 accounts per day just from our paid advertising spend, sometimes more. Also, the cost to acquire a free user is getting lower. So it's exciting. It could work. Maybe. We'll find out. But that is not the topic of our conversation today. The topic of our conversation on this day is the delightful mistakes that we have made in running uh, our own businesses as creators. Um, Obviously, we run a software company now. So some of this will be from past endeavors, um, but I think they're all equally applicable today. And uh, it'll be fun to kind of share a little bit more of our backstory stories. So... I guess I have more mistakes that I made. And so I will start and <laughs> Only then we'll because, go back and forth a little bit. Uh, you could think of them better. I was ha- really struggling to switch from like <laughs> what I'm working on today in ConvertKit to like past mistakes in the career. So it's not that you've made more mistakes, it's that you remember more of them. Indeed, I do. They were so painful. I also think that a big part of that is that ultimately I ended up shutting down my first cre- uh, creator business and yours grew to a pretty healthy place, obviously, that helped us helped you start ConvertKit that has helped us become what we are today. And so, you know, I think that's probably part of it. Okay. So my first one, I'm actually going to go in the opposite order. I think uh, Sounds good. From the way I sent them to you. My first one is that I picked the wrong audience. Now that sounds like weird, a weird mistake to make because normally some of the advice I think I would give is like, it actually usually doesn't matter what audience you pick as long as you like them enough to serve them really well. I think there are some exceptions to that. And the biggest exceptions are when that audience does not have either the ability or willingness to pay you. And I chose an audience that had neither the ability nor the willingness to pay me. So my business was called Living for Monday, and it was kind of my response to the experience I had leaving college where it felt like my only options leaving business school were Fortune 500 companies, basically. I went to a big state school called the University of Georgia. And the Career Center almost entirely focused purely on placement rates, which was just how many people get hired within six months after graduation. And the best way they could do that was big corporations where a lot of people could get hired all at once. So anyways, I I got hired to go to work at a, a accounting and consulting firm called Ernst & Young, now called EY. And I just felt like I got kind of duped in the recruiting process that I was both forced towards big companies and it was not an honest process of what the work would, they didn't share what the work would look like. They just tried to get you to accept their offers, which, you know, if it's all a game, they played the game well. Anyways, what I felt like was there was no one advocating for students. And I wanted to start a business to help coach students up to develop the self-awareness they needed to know what kind of job they wanted and then give them the resources to go look in some of the more unconventional places. The thing about ability and willingness to pay is that college students are mostly poor if not completely in debt for the next 20 years of their lives. That's the first problem. So they don't have any of their own money. So typically they're spending their parents' money and they typically spend it on things like pizza and beer and textbooks, not courses online. And second problem I made or problem with them is that they hadn't yet felt the pain of having a really bad job that was boring and sucked the life out of them. And so they didn't feel like there was any, if they got any job, they were happy. They didn't need to find the right job because they felt like any job was the right job for the most part. So I learned a lot in that, but the first mistake I made was just choosing the wrong audience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing that, a way that I've phrased it in the past is your life's going to be a lot easier if you teach a skill that makes money 
to people who have money. And it's not completely required. There's plenty of examples of people who have built amazing businesses. Um, you know, for example, we we featured an article of someone who built a quilting business to millions and millions of dollars in the billion dollar blog uh, post. That said, if you have both of those components, it's much easier to make sales. And you completely had the skill that makes money, like nailed career skills mm-hmm. is right in there. But the, you know, who you're selling it to of them not having money makes it a little trickier because in that case, you're like, wait, is the customer the student or is it the parent or is it the career center? And it starts to get muddy. And some of those could work, but it gets messy. And that led me to chasing all of them, basically. Right. It's like, let me chase parents as my customers. Let me, And then the thing about chasing parents was only the parents whose kids were not very hireable were the ones who were most likely to hire me. And so it became this whole thing. If I were going to do it over again today, I would focus more on like Fortune 500 employees, accounting mm-hmm accountants, lawyers, investment bankers, making the transition to something like startups. Right. I think that would be a really effective way to teach because they all have money. They just don't know how to break into this other career path. Or I would focus on uh, same group wanting to go into B corporations or something yep. like that, where you're essentially instilling their career with more meaning and more autonomy, but they already have money. So the money is not the problem. I think that would be a much more productive. And I think that's largely what Ramit Sethi has done with his dream job course. And right. he he understood this because he was later in his career when he launched that. Yep, that makes sense. All right, my first mistake is not growing a list or specifically not having a way to contact your readers after they come and check something out. So I wrote this article, I'll screen share really quickly. It is maybe the most clickbait headline I have ever written. Um, it is titled, How I Made $19,000 in the App Store While Learning to Code. And it dives in, I've got my finances, I've got all this detail, right? And I had been blogging for about nine months before this, kind of off and on, you know, figuring out what it looks like to run a blog, write consistently, stuff like that. I published this article, it hit the number one spot on Hacker News, and I went, I don't know what everyone thinks is so difficult about this blogging thing. Like, I've got it it figured out. Uh, And I watched traffic just explode. In two days, I got 50,000 visits to my site. And I went, man, here we go. This is going to be good. And if you were to look at Google Analytics for that period of time, and you were to hide that month, what is that, November 2011? If you were to hide that month and look at the trend in October, which was flat, and the trend in December, you would not know that something happened in November. Like you would not be like, whoa, what happened there to create this difference? You'd be like, why am I looking at a flat line? Because the thing is, is that I didn't have, like people read the article and then they just moved right along with their day. There was no subscribe to my newsletter, no follow me, not even follow me on Twitter or something like that. I just assumed that, I don't know, RSS was going to work. So well, it was good for getting my name out there in some ways, good for that first experience of uh, getting traction. I didn't grow an email list from it. There weren't lasting impacts from it. And so um, it was the very definition of the of the uh, figure of speech flash in the pan. And that was it. And so the lesson that I took away from that is whether email is the platform you choose or whatever else, you have to have a way to say, hey, did you enjoy this? Follow me. I put out new content on a regular basis. I, you know, here's how to stay in touch with my latest uh, activities. So learn that kind of the hard way, but... Uh, it, it paid off. You know what you needed? What was that? What do I need? You needed ConvertKit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it hadn't uh, been invented yet, Barrett. It's true. It's true. These are the pain points that would bring it to life. Okay. My second mistake of a long list that would be far too long of an episode is that 
we were in a mastermind group together at the time. So we would share a lot of tactics across the group. And, and one thing that you had going for you is that you were teaching something relevant to the Hacker News community. Yeah. I kind of was maybe finding jobs. I mean, like, yes, you know, if you're an engineer, you're a designer, like there are certainly people in that community I could teach to find jobs, especially now. But then I didn't know anything. I had never run a software company. And so anyways, the mistake was not playing to that community, but I did use the tactics that you used and I would promote my articles on, or at least link to them on Hacker News. I had a couple, one took off about accepting and declining job offers. And then there was one, I think about either mentoring or networking, something like that, that I wrote. And then both of those ended up getting picked up about a month or six weeks apart on a site called- um, Lifehacker, right? Lifehacker, yep. which was really big. I don't even know if it still exists, but it was really big at the time. And it drove a ton of traffic. I mean, way more to their site, I'm sure, than it did to mine. However, I did have an email signup form on those. My audience grew like tenfold in six weeks. Now, it wasn't massive, but I went from like several hundred subscribers to thousands of subscribers in a relatively short amount of time. And so, in many cases, you would call that traction. Now, what do you normally do when you have traction? You keep going on the things that created the traction because that's what leads to momentum. But what I did was I freaked out and I was like, oh, I got traction. I got to find a way to make money from this, which is also very normal, right? Like I had gone all in. I had no money to my name, um, all things considered. Like I had put some money away in my year of consulting, but not enough to keep going indefinitely. And so I saw this opportunity and was like, I better, I better find a way to sell something to these people or else I'm going to be in trouble. And this classic dilemma as an independent creator is do I make content or do I make a product? Yeah. And if I only have capacity for one, like how do I keep doing the content while I make the product? It's so hard. I think everyone struggles with it. Even James Clear will say he struggled to keep writing while he was writing his book recently. That became, of course, Atomic Habits that was now a bestseller for God knows how many weeks. And so it's a classic problem. And I completely fell into the trap where I stopped writing at my point of highest velocity in terms of audience growth to focus on building the thing that I thought could make money. And it was a huge mistake. I should have kept focusing on audience growth because the bigger my audience was, the more opportunity I would have had to make money longer term. And all things considered, I think that was maybe one of the most fatal blows to the whole thing was rather than continuing on the momentum, I circled back around to try and make money too fast. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm noticing all these times in my career where I've seen something going well and thought, okay, now that's going well, I can focus on this other area. Yes. Like I've always thought of it as like the legs on a stool where you're like, cool, that one's in a good spot. So let's focus over here and then we'll bounce around. And then we'll circle back around to the one that's going well in like another couple months. Man, it's so tempting to do. And so tempting. And it sounds like good strategy, right? But what works so much better, and I wish I did this in a few different places, is say, hey, that's working. Let's do more of that. Yes. So anyway, I feel you on that one. My next mistake that I'd go with is tying output to motivation. I was definitely someone who, for a long time, got really inspired. I'd be like, I have the best idea. I had, I had all the best ideas. And I would just dive in and say, okay, we're going to write out the outline of this book. We're like, let me just dive in, start writing chapter one. At this current pace, we'll be done by Tuesday. Like, let's go. And what would always happen is I would make it usually about three days in. For me, that 
inspiration and the motivation that follows is about worth 72 hours. And then what happens is like, oh yeah, I still got to do this client work. I still have these other things. You know, the initial spark, what you thought was an idea worthy of a whole book or an entire product is actually worthy for like a quarter of it. And so I would just let that die out. And so I didn't actually make progress on a product that got traction until I learned to separate motivation from output. Mm. And that's where, for me, Chris Gillibo was the most helpful. He had some article that he wrote that was talking about showing up consistently. I can't remember who the author that he quoted was. I don't know if it was Hemingway or somebody like that who has a quote of like, I only write when I'm inspired. I just happen to be inspired every morning at 9 a.m. You know, like just, it was a whole series of those kind of quotes all coming together at a time to realize like, oh, I need consistency and a system rather than motivation and inspiration. And that's what finally was the turning point for me of like showing up and writing consistently. And then I was able to go from all these false starts into a book um, that I actually finished and published. Yeah. I find that um, my most meaningful writing is always when I really have something to say. Yeah. And I rarely know what I have to say until I have to sit down and start writing, you know, and think about what is it that I believe enough to try and convince other people of, or what am I observing that other people might benefit from? And so having that habit and it's a muscle, mm -hmm. it atrophies just like working out. I mean, I, I, we both suffer from this now. I, in fact, I remember one day on the show sometime this year, you said, I'm going to start writing daily. And here's yep. a public log of that daily rate. How's that going? <laughs> the public version <laughs> is not going super well. Um, that said, the streak is at 34 days. Hey, that's pretty good. So, you know, it's like you said, it's a muscle and a man, it can be hard. And it's like sometimes this weekend and see yesterday was good writing. Saturday was one of those, like I wrote maybe 200 words and it was definitely kind of forced. And like, mm -hmm. it was a, I am sitting down and doing this because I need to show up consistently and I'm checking the box. Whereas other times you sit down and you're like, Oh, I have something to say. Let's go. Yeah. And you know, you may have seen some of these analogies around of like, if you're a track star or an Olympic track runner, you have things you're trying to get better at every day in order to prep for the next Olympics. It's running sprints and weightlifting and mobility and whatever, mental toughness. There are like concrete things you can do every day. And as a creator, understanding the input, like I, I think it's actually way more complex in our roles now, Nathan, to know exactly what things we should do every day to get better at our jobs. But as a creator, it's make shit. That is the, what you need to get better at every day. And then thinking about the component skills. So like if you're a music producer, making something, making anything, a beat, uh, just like anything or deconstructing someone else's song to understand why you like it. What's the rhythm that they applied to it. Doing something related to producing a piece of music every day is the key. Yes. There's all these other things you need to do as part of your business, but if you aren't doing that part, you are bound to eventually run dry of ideas. And then that, you know, on some level leads to business failure, if not just decline along the way. Yeah, for sure. So I got to this point. Remember, I had combined these two mistakes. Now I had chosen the wrong audience and I had stopped my momentum at its greatest point of velocity. And I was probably, I want to say like 18 months in, maybe two full years into running my business and I had made some money here and there. You know, I was doing the typical like freelancing consulting thing on the side to bring some cash in. 
And it got to this point where I had a conversation with a family friend and I think, I don't know if he offered to invest or I asked him to invest in the business or what, but from a place of need for cash, because we had been my now wife, my girlfriend at the time, and I were living together. We were living off of her, you know, entry level income, basically I, I needed to make money. And so in order to do that, you either sell stuff or you raise money and pay yourself a salary. Well, I ended up raising money and paying myself a salary out of that. But it was from a place of need, not from a strategic advantage standpoint. I didn't have a clear reason the business needed money. I just had a personal reason I needed money. And so as a result of that, I raised a relatively small amount of money and gave away a relatively large amount of the company. It didn't accelerate anything. There was nothing to accelerate with that money. It was just, in fact, it was almost more like a acquire kind of deal because he paid us monthly. He didn't invest all of it up front. He was paying me and one employee that I hired salaries basically. And so it wasn't a lump sum that we could spend on growing the company. It was actually just being employed by the company. And it created more distractions, more pressure, and no additional progress, which was not helpful. And so the mistake there was not having a clear vision for what I needed money for. And I wrote, I raised money for the wrong reasons. I don't think that there's anything particularly wrong with raising some money to run a creative business, but if you're going to do it, there should be a strong way you can use the capital to make progress. Number one. And number two, you should try and sell a relatively small amount of the, the business to someone that understands at most they're going to get cash flow out of it. You know, you're, you're not going to sell many of these creator businesses for a huge sum of money later down the road. So anyways, I either wouldn't have raised money or I would have done it under di different conditions if I were doing it over again. That makes sense. I think, I mean, I've gone down this path a couple times and, and never ended up raising money, but we've got really close for ConvertKit twice, I guess. And what's interesting is that the first time it, we didn't raise money, it wasn't because it was like, oh, let's not, let's make a strategic decision to go a different direction. It was because it just didn't work out. You know, and now I'm grateful that it, that didn't work out. But at the time it was because I think it was in a similar position. I didn't know what I would do with it, where we'd go, all of that. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, my last one is my last mistake that I have listed here of many mistakes that I will think of later uh, is trying too many things at once. And this is something that I made over and over again. I think I'm actually currently making that same mistake today. And so it's a recurring one that probably shows up every 24 months in a major way. The first time that I made this, it was when I got initial traction with uh, my blog. You know, the books and courses were selling well, all the stuff that people know, know me for now. And I was like, wow, that's so exciting. And I wanted another challenge to layer on top of that. And so I was like, that's when I started ConvertKit. And somewhere in there, I realized that I was... Like the people that I was looking up to and that, oh, I want to be like more like that, were the people who were saying, you know, if you cl clicked on their Twitter bio, it would say like serial entrepreneur. And they talk about how they had like six businesses going and, you mm -hmm. know, all of this stuff. And I'm like, wow, you must be a great entrepreneur if you can run six businesses. I want to be like you. Now I just look at it and be like, that is the dumbest idea ever. What, what were you even thinking? Like run one business, run maybe, you know, have one primary focus and then like put a little bit of time into something else you know, as a, as a mental break or whatever. Now, almost everyone that I see running all these businesses are doing it. Like each business could be so much bigger if they just focused on it. Yes. And that's exactly what, 
what I was doing, where I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to build ConvertKit into this great software company. And I'm going to grow my blog and this audience business and create more courses. And I just imagine people on the outside being like, I would switch to ConvertKit. And actually someone did say this to me and that was kind of a wake up call. I would switch to ConvertKit, but it looks like you're spending about 20% of your time on it. And honestly, I'm not trusting my email list or my business to someone who's spending 20% of their time on any one part of their business. And so, you know, that was something where I had to focus in and say, what is the one thing that I'm trying to do? What is the one outcome that I'm trying to create? And so I decided that it was with ConvertKit. And the one outcome was to grow MRR to the point that it could become self-sustaining. And when I focused on that, that made a lot of sense. The reason that it came up again, I was thinking about it recently, is Paul Jarvis, who uh, is a good friend and um, writes a really good newsletter. Uh, on his newsletter yesterday, he just kind of talked about his career and what he does, just sort of an overarching thing for the whole thing. And he made an, a note that when he writes a book or something like that, he stops everything else. And he just focuses in on that for that period and that season, and he moves on to the next thing. And yeah, he's preparing ideas for it and building up to it. And then there's the focus time. And then afterwards, there's some spillover afterwards. That level of focus that he was talking about really made me realize, oh, I'm trying to really narrow in and grow this company. I'm also growing the audience. I'm also doing the podcast. I'm doing all of these things. And at the same time, I'm like, okay, now is the time that I want to get my book proposal finished, get that shipped off. And what stood out to me is that if I'm going to get that done, I should probably block out, say just for the proposal, I should probably block out seven, 10 working days, somewhere in there to knock that out and then resurface, work on other things, you know? Yes. One priority at a time. Yeah. And so I'm, anyway, that's been on my mind of like, back then this is a mistake that I made, but now I've learned from it. And you're like, have I? Anyway, that's my, probably my biggest recurring mistake. I love that. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, uh, you know, when I write down my priorities and just what I need to be working on, it would feel so much better to check one off and then move right. on to the next one than to feel like they're all kind of in progress to different degrees. So I can definitely relate to that too, I think. And this kind of runs counter to the whole thing I said about stopping momentum at the greatest point of velocity. And so one thing is you have to know where you are mm-hmm. in your business. You know, as a company, we are at a point where you could spend two or three weeks focusing on a book proposal right now. Now, maybe we should argue, we could have a whole conversation about, well, should we get like a director or VP of product hired first? Correct. And then you go spend that time. Yep. And and that's a worthwhile conversation of what comes first. But the company will keep growing. It will keep making money regardless of which thing you decide to focus on for several weeks at a time. And I think that's the challenge as a creator is really knowing where you stand. Paul Jarvis, his business is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and he knows that if he takes this break, it's actually going to fuel its ongoing growth. It's not going to interrupt it or prevent it altogether. And so knowing what stage you're at, I think matters too with this stuff. Okay. My last one, it was going to be related to uh, raising money too, but it's, uh, that's actually all part of the last one that I explained was I chose the wrong person to raise money from as well. Wasn't a good long-term partner. um, Although he was a wonderful friend and mentor to me throughout my life from a young age. My last mistake is I think I would give a lot money, time, energy. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I could give. I can't give anything because it's over now. But if I had kept running the same podcast I was running eight years ago, mm. and if I had kept writing daily from the time that I started writing daily when I worked for Seth Godin seven years ago, I might not have any audience. I don't know. But what I would have is I would have 2,100 blog posts 
and I would have whatever that is, 400 podcast episodes under my belt. There's no particular reason that I stopped other than just like, I don't know, at some point someone mentioned maybe I should stop writing daily. And then at some point, you know, the business shut down. And so I just shut down the podcast at the same time, even though they didn't necessarily have to be tied to each other. And I don't know how many times I have to say this before I'm like, okay, well, the next best time is today, my friend. But there is some element of just having a body of work that reflects your thinking and growth over time that's, that's valuable as a creator. You know, just being prolific is one strategy. You know, there's another strategy that's like the Malcolm Gladwell of being highly refined with everything you ever put out. But the secret to him is he gets paid a salary by a publication who has very strong editorial guidelines that he has to meet. And so that's one way to do it. But for me, I think um, if I could do it over again, I'd love to have a wider body of work over a longer period of time than, than none at all, for sure. Yep. That makes sense. Um, before we dive into, uh, resources or creators, um, Teddy asked a question in the chat. Well, one, he said, we blame James clear for this. Absolutely. We blame James for most things. Um, but the question he asked is Nathan, how about the don't throw away your competitive advantage blog post? How big of a mistake do you think Amy Hoy helped you avoid? Mm. Um, so for context, when I set out to build a SaaS company, I didn't actually start with the idea of building ConvertKit. I set out to build a SaaS company because I wanted to get back into software. I wanted a recurring revenue source, all of that. And so I was thinking, let me go after you know anyone who has a problem that I can solve. So I was like, what's going on in real estate? What's going on in these service businesses? I was uh, talent when it comes to code and design in search of a problem. Mm. And Amy, so Amy came in and said like, wait, you're telling me you've got I think at the time, maybe 2,500 people on your email list. You've just generated more than $100,000 in product revenue over the last four or five months. And you're going to be like, hey, that's great. Actually, this is the legs of the stool thing, right? (laughs) She's going to go, you're going to say, that's great. Let me go seek out something new over here. And I was like, oh yeah, pretty much. And (laughs) she basically said, don't throw away your competitive advantage. Go build something for those people. Think of your audience as a series of, as like Venn diagrams, like each product that you're considering, each group of attention that you have, overlap those. Do they overlap completely? Awesome. Are they here and over here? That's not a path to long-term sustainability. And so with that, then I went back to, okay, forget going out into the whole market and searching for a problem to solve. What problems do I have? What problems do I have that are also shared by the 2000 people that already follow me? And I had a lot of designers on the list, but some people were following me for digital products and and that kind of thing. And so uh, email marketing and ConvertKit was the one that overlapped both those circles. So that was a huge lesson. I think I didn't count it as a a mistake because it was like going down this road and we're like, just kidding, let's go this way now. (laughs) And uh, I'm glad that it worked out so well. Yeah, I love that idea of kind of overlapping circles I think there's a lot, especially if you're building a personal brand, you Mm -hmm. know, your name is the company. I think there's a lot of value in that. And uh, Ryan's listening in today, I think, but one of our friends, Ryan, always pushes me on this and, and says like, you don't need to change your positioning of your site to write about new things. But I think in my overlapping Venn diagrams now today of building high-performing teams, finding meaningful jobs, and then the most important problems in the world yeah. and what, what we should be doing as individuals and companies to solve them. 
And there are a lot of people who are interested in all of them, you know, finding meaningful work, leading high-performing teams and solving important problems. And you could think of like the ideal job or situation and all of that being working for a very mission-driven company where you're leading a high-performing team, solving an important problem in the world. Like that would be who I'm trying to write for basically. And I just find all of those things fascinating that's like what I, my friends know me for right. is those things, you know, that's why they want to talk to me about stuff. And so knowing what your competitive advantage is, is important. Like really knowing it in the eyes of other people so that you can leverage it gives you a ton of a head start when it comes to growing your business. Sounds good. Okie dokie. Creator of the day. That was new. We've never heard anything like that on this show. Yeah, that it was it was one hundred percent new. Uh, I was always wondering what, um, like, how you make the decision of which octave to go with. Uh, but you know, we'll have to get into that in a future episode. Yes, my creator and resource of the day. I'm combining the two. Someone that you've definitely heard of, uh, Kevin Hart, and his book "You Can't Make This Up." It's just so good. One, listen to the audiobook because he goes wildly off script at times. And there's one part where he says, like, I haven't been reading from the book and for the last 10 minutes, you know, just telling stories, doing accents, everything else. As it comes to a resource, I want to tie back to that first mistake because uh, Kevin and I actually share that mistake of not having a way to follow up with your audience. And uh, in the book, he talks about doing all these comedy shows. And showing up, you know, a club promoter would put a, a lineup on stage. He would show up, he would do his show. Even like six, seven, eight comedians on stage for a night wouldn't sell out a relatively small venue. And it wasn't until he started to build his email list and passed around cards for people to fill out to, that he could send them an email and let them know the next time he was in their city, you know, he'd have a clipboard with a sign up sheet. And once he started to build his email list, then he was able to show up in New York, in Philadelphia, in Chicago, wherever, and email. First, it was like 20 people and be like, hey, I'm a part of this show. And then he'd collect more email subscribers from that. But then it, it grew from there and he would have hundreds of people in each city. And it went from him being like one name in a long lineup to him being able to like kind of carry the show. And when they realized he was driving more sales than anyone else, then he got to be the, you know, the big name on that. And then it went from, they'd have to add a second night and it built up from there. And in the book, he credits all of that to building an email list where he could directly contact his fans. And so the book is wildly entertaining. And I think you'll find it as uh, some good inspiration for staying consistent and building a way to connect with your audience. Yeah. You know, it's funny. The the thing about headliners is they're just the people who the most people in the audience want to see. <laughs> yeah. Like that is all a headliner is. And when you open for a headliner, it's just because no one knows who you are yet and you're trying to get right. exposure. And so what I love about the story is he made himself the headliner. He just said, look, I'm going to invite more people than you. And so more people in the room are going to want to see me than you. Therefore, I'm going to become the headliner. <laughs> yeah. Like it makes sense. I love it. Oh, man. Okay. My creator of the day is a guy named Mike Sykes. Found him, I think on Clubhouse. Anyways, he runs a newsletter. The kicks you wear on uh, on another platform. We're going to get them on ConvertKit <laughs> eventually. But anyways, I'm highlighting him on Twitter because I want more creators like this on ConvertKit. He runs a thread every Thursday called uh, The Kicks We Wear. And uh, people respond with what shoes they're wearing that day. Nice. And it's just so funny. He's doing this really awesome job of highlighting a community of 
uh, what's known to a lot of people as sneakerheads, all obsessed with shoes in ways that are probably not terribly healthy, but fun nonetheless. And bringing them all together with photos like this, and you get to see what people across the internet are wearing on their feet or have dug out of their closet to put on their feet specifically for the Twitter thread. Uh, and then he writes a newsletter where he highlights some people from the community. He talks about what shoes are coming out from different brands. He, uh, like today in his newsletter, he highlighted this new show that one of my our teammates made fun of me for called Sneakerheads. It's horribly corny. I don't remember which platform put it out, Hulu or Netflix, one of them. Uh, it's a fiction show about collecting sneakers. <laughs> but anyways, he, he did like a review of it and said, it's not worth your time. However, here's what I thought of it. I love him. I think he's great. So Mike Sykes, shout out to you. If you're listening to this, if you like sneakers, check him out. Good stuff. Is that all we have for today? I think that is. That's it. <laughs> With this amazing ending. Um, let's see. Closing thoughts. You know, on Friday. Yes. Before you have a closing thought, on Friday, uh, we're going to start inviting some more members of the team to be co-hosts of the show over the next couple of months. Uh, so Friday, someone will be joining me for q and I'll let you know ahead of time on Twitter, which means you should be following me on Twitter, Barrett A. Brooks, two R's, two T's, don't ever forget it. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's my promo for Friday. What's your closing thought, Nathan? Uh, my closing thought <laughs> is just take a step back, reflect, write down some of those mistakes and what you learned from them. Um, we're a big fan of retros and, uh, if you take the time to do it, then you can lock in some of those learnings. And it's also kind of fun to see, okay, this is how far we've come. I have learned things. I'm not repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So take some time to do that, document your mistakes. And it's a great topic for a blog post or a podcast episode. So if you can be like seven mistakes I made in the last seven years of being a creator, something like that. Just saying the headlines write themselves. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for hanging out and we will see you later. Bye y'all. Thanks for listening to The Future Belongs to Creators. We're the makers of ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project to start building your audience with a landing page and to send emails up to 500 subscribers for free, go to landingpage.new. That's landingpage.new to get started with the free ConvertKit account today. We'll see you next time.